You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. But if you remember, uh, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who it is. Lots of hypotheses about who it is. Uh, but it's somebody who is not just a brilliant mind, but is a loving pastor. Very rare to have those combination, uh, that combination in one person. Uh, either you get someone who is very erudite, uh, or you get somebody who is a very good loving pastor. And to have those two things join, both the heart and the brain, is a remarkable thing. Because we know that he's steeped in the scriptures and uh, he's very logical in how he lays out things. And so right out of the gate, he lays out who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. That he's God in the flesh and that he came to make purification for sins. That's why Jesus came, to make purification for sins. For no other reason than that, to reconcile God's people to God the Father. That's why Jesus came. But like today in contemporary society, strange ideas about who Jesus is and what he came to do start to creep in. And why is that? Because we take our eyes off of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so the way the author of Hebrews says it is that we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And that's true, isn't it? I mean, the example I always use is swimming as a child and even now on Pauly's Island, where the, uh, uh, the current is pretty strong, that you're out there and you think that you're staying in one place, bobbing along, talking to your friends, and you look up a half an hour later, and it turns out you've moved sometimes well over 100 yards down the beach. Imperceptible. You don't know that you've even moved until all of a sudden you lift your head up and realize you moved. And the only way you know you moved is why? Because you look back to the fixed point, the beach umbrella, the tree, the house, the people, whatever it is. And so at that point, you have one of two options, according to the author of Hebrews. You can either say, I'm going to spiritually paddle back to the fixed point, or you know what, we're just going to stay here and establish a new fixed point. But the problem is, is if you do that, you're going to be establishing fixed points that are not so fixed down the beach, aren't you? Because eventually you will get to Nova Scotia. Theoretically, that's where you're going to go. And so the author of Hebrews is challenging those who they're writing to about mistaking Jesus for an angel because that's, and, and the word angel is, is very confusing in the Bible. Because when I say angel, what do you think? What do you think? Right wings, right the, oh, there's one right there. And there's one, there's a couple over there. There's a really good one with a sword over there. And uh, that's the, what we think of as, as angels. But sometimes the word angel is used to describe a non-spiritual being, like a messenger. So if you really want to have your mind twisted, if you read the opening chapters of Revelation where uh, God is speaking to the angels of each church, it's not a guardian angel for each church. He's actually talking about the pastor of each church. So did you know that you were pastored by an angel? <laughs> right, right. You know me too well for that. 
So there's an idea that Jesus is this angelic being, not just the supernatural kind, but he is a messenger to bring uh, the word of God. But the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 no. He is much more than that. And so he launches into the incarnation. And after he talks about it, where he uh, again uh, says... uh, uh, the, the miracle of the incarnation that he's made a propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Right? That's one of the collateral benefits of the incarnation of God coming in the flesh amongst us. He knows exactly what we have gone through. He is not unsympathetic to our struggles. He knows what it means to be tempted and yet not succumb to that temptation. And so I know if you're looking at your bulletin where we are today, it says Hebrews 4, but we're not even there yet. So just disregard that because here we are in Hebrews chapter 3. And let's read that to a point. If you want to follow along, we're on page 1002 in your pew Bibles. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The word of the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Our God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious message of the gospel and that by Jesus you have made us your house and you dwell within us. Lord, that we would not forget that, but that we would indeed hold fast the confidence that you have given us and boasting only in our hope that is in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So he said, well, if this is what Jesus has come to do, therefore, we need to remember that we share in a heavenly calling, considering Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And the language that the author uses, therefore holy brothers, is actually the word indicating a sibling relationship, uh, a filial relationship, not just therefore holy friends, but actually brothers and sisters. And so the author is beginning to set up this idea of God's family, the church, which To a Hebrew believer in Jesus, this is a really big deal. And even to this day, if you have Jewish friends, the family is everything. The family is everything and how they hold sway uh, amongst, I have some Jewish cousins and uh, and some of them more Orthodox than others. And, uh, And it's amazing to me the number of men, especially in the family, who will go to synagogue for high holy days until what moment? Their mom dies. And so there's incredible importance amongst Jews to do that uh, because it's not just a religious devotion, it's a family activity. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, you need to understand that you're a part of a family now, that you've been grafted into it through Jesus Christ. That those who you sit next to week in and week out in church are not just 
people, they're actually your brothers and sisters, and this changes the way that you relate to one another. Now, this is hard for me because I try to think of my relationship with my siblings, and it's not great. It's not great. I was the oldest, and I was a tyrant. I teased my brothers mercilessly, and uh, I've been repenting for it uh, for several decades now. Uh, But nonetheless, what uh, the author of Hebrews is saying is that even if your relationships are strained with one another, because your family, there's nothing that you can do about it, right? Even if you have a strained relationship with your natural-born siblings, it's not as if you can just go trade them in. They're your family no matter what. And so the author of Hebrews says it's real easy just to walk away from one another, but you're going to have to do the really hard work that every family is called to do and to work this out because it's greater than even blood. People say that blood is thicker than water. When it comes to Christianity, the opposite is true. The waters of baptism are thicker than blood. Because believers, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we actually share a deeper intimacy with one another than we do with our siblings, especially if our siblings are not believers. And that's one of the great difficulties about family relationships, especially marital relationships. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're trying to interact with a family member, a natural-born family member who is not a believer, your relationship can only go so far because you can't enter into the, the fullness of what is most important about you, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, if Jesus is just one little pie segment of your life, in the same way that your social life is or your work life or uh, whatever it may be, then yes, you probably can have a significant degree of intimacy with him. But if Jesus is the very center of your life and everything is ordered by that relationship, then that's going to affect your relationship, especially with non-believers, even if you're related to them. Now, ultimately, I would hope that we would say, because that person's not a believer, that we want to see them become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me say this, a prophet is never honored in their hometown. Witnessing to your immediate family members is probably the most difficult thing that any of us is ever called to do. And it almost never works. There's just too much baggage. And some of us have suitcases and others of us like me have U-Haul trailers. Right? It's just hard to get over that kind of stuff. And so I think we do need to have a reason for the hope that is within us. But we also uh, need to be praying that God would raise up godly men and women to come into the lives of our brothers and our sisters, our family, uh, natural-born siblings. But what you're able to share with those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is they get you and they understand you in a way that non-believers cannot. So the author of Hebrews is saying, remember this. This is not just a natural-born relationship, but it's much deeper than that. He describes it as a heavenly calling. And you've got to work it out. You're in relationship with one another. And this is hard because if you start to think about it, often you know, people will say that the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. I mean, we're awful to one another a lot of the time. And we need to be reminded uh, that if we're having a hard time with one another here on earth, uh, think about what it's going to be like for eternity with one another. 
I mean, I, I preached on uh, the story of Zacchaeus. You know the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector who tra- climbed the sycamore tree, and Jesus called him and said, Zacchaeus, today I want you to come. I want you to come down. I'm going to your house for dinner tonight. And there is a part of me, the, the fleshly side of me, that wishes that some people just stayed up in trees and, and that Jesus didn't call them, call them down. And this is, this is actually scriptural. Remember when Jonah was called to Nineveh, uh, Jonah finally, you can go back and read it, most of you know the story, when he finally went to Nineveh and he began to preach, people began to turn to the Lord. And what was Jonah's response? He got mad about it. I knew that you would have forgiveness and mercy on these people. He actually begrudged the mercy of the Lord in the same way that we do. And we know that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, even though we're entering into this heavenly calling, we are a mixed bag. Right? We're simul justus et peccator, as uh, the reformers said, that we are at the same time justified and yet sinful. Uh, We're in relationship with God, and yet we're not what we are going to be. And even the hardest and most difficult relationships that you experience now here on earth are going to be not only redeemed in heaven, but you're going to have a greater intimacy with your greatest frenemy, your Christian frenemy, in heaven than you currently have with your spouse right now, even if they're a believer. Because there's not going to be any sin between the two of you. You're actually only going to be able to relate to one another with pure love and affection. And it's not fake. You're not going to get up in heaven and say, oh, you know, Bill's going to be at this fellowship thing we got down on, down on the, you know, that, the third street of gold on the right that we're going to. None of that. Uh, none of that at all. But in fact, it is the family that we've always longed for, and it would uh, not even be adequate to call it perfect, because it will be even beyond that. But he says, again, always consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Again, using Old Testament language of the high priest who would go into the holy places, he's setting that up because he's going to get to that uh, and and, uh, moving uh, forward in Hebrews. The high priest of our confession who is faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. He's bringing up Moses now because for the Jew, who was Moses to them? He's everything, right? He's at the top of the heap. Moses is the end-all, be-all. He's the great leader. He's the most identifiable figure with Judaism. Now, Judaism certainly doesn't teach uh, that, that Moses is any way divine. The Old Testament takes care of that pretty quickly. In fact, it was God's uh, judgment against Moses that he wouldn't even get to, he would get to see the promised land, but he would never get to enter it. And yet Moses is a big deal. Why? Because Moses was the mediator between God and the people and the people and God. When they didn't want to mess with God, they would say, Moses, why don't you go up and talk to him? And when God would want to pour out his wrath on the people, Moses would often say, show them mercy, Lord. Show them mercy. 
So Mo- and God spoke uh, through Moses to uh, order their lives as a people, especially as they wandered in the wilderness. And the formative time period uh, of the Israelites and the Jewish faith happened in the wilderness. That's where it all happened, in that tabernacle worship that took place there. And it was years and years and years and years until they'd ever build a temple. And so that was the formative time, and Moses really is uh, the top guy for them. And so all of a sudden, he invokes Moses, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. But here he's bringing up, he's pointing them back to the truth of God's house. What is God's house? In the Old Testament, God's house is spoken of in a couple of ways. In the first instance, the tabernacle. There was the tabernacle that traveled around. And then when uh, the temple was built, sometimes people would just say the temple is God's house. Uh, and, uh, but more specifically, the Holy of Holies. And, uh, and yet, uh, there was still in the Old Testament the understanding that God's people were his house. But then we get to the New Testament, and there's only one way in which God's house is spoken of, and that's how. Well, actually, yeah, there's two, the, he's, the temple is spoken of in two ways. There's Jesus is the temple in Revelation, but here he's talking about God's people being God's house. A little ironic, and I felt a little sheepish, but I have to trust it was the Lord that if you were at the nine o'clock, the opening sentence from Scripture was, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now, this gets very confusing, because what does that sound like? The building. And yet the author of Hebrews says what? No such thing. No such thing that God doesn't dwell in buildings, but he dwells in his people, which is a remarkable thing because for the Jew, because when the author is writing, the the temple is still functioning. It's still happening. And so if you want to get close to God, you actually can travel geographically. You can go into Jerusalem. You can go up uh, to the temple, and you can enter pretty close. You can't go into the Holy of Holies, but you can, you can get right there. And even to this day, if you go to J- Jerusalem, you see people praying at the Western Wall, often called the Wailing Wall. And does anyone know what part of the temple that is? Yeah, it's just a foundation. It's a retention wall to hold the temple up. I mean, it would be a little bit like you going uh, into your garden where there's, you put up a sort of brick retention wall if the house was no longer there and you just sort of dwelled in that area. It's a little strange, but why? Because the Shekinah glory of God was so great that they felt like it even permeated the stones of the retention wall. And often uh, a misunderstood thing why are Jews not going up to the Dome of the Rock? Everyone thinks that it's because, well, because they're Jewish and, uh, and, and that's Muslim territory. That has a little something to do with it. But do you know the reason, main reason why Jews don't go up there? Because that's where the temple was and they're afraid that they will step over the area that was the Holy of Holies. 
And this is how serious they take it. And so it's a remarkable thing to say. If you're afraid of actually treading over that area that has now been, you know, it's been almost 2,000 years, and it's been built over and moved around, and if you're afraid to do that, uh, how awesome is it to understand that God lives in you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are God's house. So the author goes on, that if, uh, if Moses was faithful in all of God's house, how much more worthy of glory than Moses is the Lord Jesus? For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. That God has constructed in you and me a lasting temple. Where Moses was able to construct a tent, a tent of meeting. And yes, Solomon was able to build a temple. And then another temple was built that Herod gets credit for. But in fact, the greatest wonder of spiritual architecture is not to be built by human hands, but was built by God himself in you and me. And that Christ is faithful over it. Now this is important to see that in verse 6. Because verse 6 runs into something that has befuddled many a Christian believer since it was first written. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now all of a sudden, I felt like I was on really secure ground, but then all of a sudden, the author uses a particular word that when my wife and I are speaking, if we use it, we're heading into dangerous territory. That is if. If you, then this. It sounds action consequence, doesn't it? If you hold fast your confidence and boasting in the hope that is in Jesus, then you are his house. Makes it sound like you could go from being a house to being nothing. Is that what the author is saying? No. Because what the author is hitting on is this idea of the perseverance of the saints. That those of us who have this house built within us, that even the gates of hell won't be able to prevail against, even if they try to shake the foundations, they're too strong that we will persevere. It doesn't mean that there are going to be times in your life where you're not going to experience doubt and unbelief. I mean, right now, Lauren and the girls and I, we're moving house, and this is why I'm not wearing a collar, because everything is on a truck right now, and this is as good as it gets today. It's not a fashion statement. But <laughs> there's nothing worse than moving, and I understand this is a first-world problem. Uh, but, um, but when stress comes in on our lives, whatever it is and however it manifests itself, uh, there are times in our lives more much more significant than moving that we're going to experience that we're going to say, God, where are you in this? If I'm your house, why is there a vacancy sign out front? Why do I feel like you're not dwelling within me? Now, more often than not, that's not the fault of God. That's the fault of us. If anybody's moved, it's not him. It's you and me. 
But the issue is that is God faithful to his people in the midst of their unfaithfulness? That's the real question, isn't it? Does God get to the point where he says, you've reached your limit, you've crossed the line, I'm done with you? Well, let's move on. Because Hebrews chapter 3 tells us, picking up with the seventh verse, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do do not harden your hearts as in the day of the rebellion." For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, you know this psalm, don't you? It's Psalm 95. If you were at the 9 o'clock, you sang it. Come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the God of our salvation. Now, funny enough, we never get to this part where it says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Actually, it used to be an Anglicanism that they would sing all of Psalm 95, and they would get to that verse. And then for time's sake, they said, well, let's just cut it off here. And like most traditions in Anglicanism, it just kind of sticks. If you do it twice, it's a tradition. And so they, they just kind of rolled with it. Uh, but he's talking about, the psalmist is talking about the multiple rebellions that took place in numbers between chapters 11 and 21. There are multiple rebellions that take place, about seven in all, in just those uh, chapters. But what's interesting here is that the use of the word today, 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 Because what is God's call on our lives when it comes to faithfulness? Today. Today is enough. Today. And Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95. Now, it's funny because numbers happened way before the Psalm, before Psalm 95, and yet that was God's word reminding the people of that day not to harden your hearts like the people back then. And then the author of Hebrews is using Psalm 95 to say, do not harden your hearts like the psalmist reminded the people way back then about what happened in Numbers. And even The author would say to us today who are listening, today, do not harden your hearts as I reminded the Hebrews who were reminded by the psalmist who was reminding those of his day not to harden your hearts like the people in Numbers, in the wilderness. And how did this rebellion manifest itself? Through hardened hearts. Remember, they grumbled. They were ungrateful. 
Uh, the reason why they had to wander around for 40 years is so that that generation could die out. That almost nobody, with few exceptions, I think there are only two, maybe one, two, that actually lived, remembered Egypt that went into Canaan. And so what does this mean for us today? Well, it means for me, as I was preparing this, I, I got a little bit upset as I was thinking about the logic of the author of Hebrews. Because if it's true, that means God is saying to me, Andrew, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. I don't feel like I'm hardening my heart. You got the wrong guy. But you know the funny thing about hardening your heart is it begins before you even know it. I mean, there have been people who uh, have left uh, our fellowship over one thing or another, sometimes for good reasons, we're moving out of town. But sometimes, sometimes it's because they fixated on a certain point and they just simply cannot get over it. And so when the day comes where they say, I'm leaving, is that the day that they harden their heart? No. The day that their heart began to harden was long before that, in a pew, or maybe even before then, something had happened in their own lives that they began to set their heart against something. And then finally it had hardened to the point that it was impenetrable and they simply left. They simply left. I mean, that's one of the saddest things. Have you ever encountered that where you come into church one day and you see your brothers and your sisters and all of a sudden you're reminded of someone and you think, where? What happened to them? Where did they go? And sometimes they didn't go to another church. They just went away, gone. So that's why the author of Hebrews is saying, take care to you today. Do not harden your hearts. And even you, Andrew, who doesn't think that your heart is being hardened about anything, to actually say, well, if God is putting this before my eyes today, then maybe I really do need to examine my heart and say, God, if I'm hardening it someplace, Make that known to me so that I can guard against it. Because I don't want to be one of those people that it just gets so far along that my heart becomes so calloused that I can no longer hear your word. And ultimately, what the author of Hebrews is talking about is actually the gospel. That you become so fixated on being in the wilderness that you even begin to resent the manna and the quail and the water from the rock, which when you first tasted it, were miraculous because you had nothing. And now even the miraculous has become commonplace and you begin to grumble. And that's going to be true of all of us. It's going to be true of all of us, especially those of us who can point back and say, I remember the day that I came to know the Lord and the joy of that salvation that filled my heart and just overwhelmed in those mountaintop experiences. And it's been a long time since I felt that way, since I felt the nearness and closeness to God. But also that means that you're actually maturing in your relationship with God. But if you're taking for granted the gospel, 
if you're hardening your heart against God, that you actually are harboring an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, then that puts us in a very difficult spot. Again, the author is not saying if you've, if you've turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ that you are going to lose your salvation because God is going to carry that through to the end. But what he is saying is that there were those who were in the wilderness who dwelled in the midst of the Israelite people who were circumcised of the flesh but were not circumcised of the heart. That it wasn't as if, oh, well, they were trusting in God and now they're not. But in fact, these people never trusted in God in the first place. God was simply a consideration to them. And as they begin to surround themselves with other believers who say, isn't it amazing how God has provided for us in this manna? Every day, every day, except for the Sabbath, God gives us this bread. Start to make you sick. Like, why are you so chipper about it? I mean, one, it happens every day, but Saturday or Friday night and, or Saturday morning. And, and isn't that what God is supposed to do for us? Why are you so excited about it? Because their heart never did change. It might have had manners. They showed up and did corporate worship with everybody else. But in fact, their heart was left in an unbelieving state. He says, but exhort one another every day, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't you feel good that you've done a good deed when you go up to a brother or sister and you say, even if you're lying, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. And normally what happens is you see the person and it reminds you that you should have been praying for them. And so as you're walking over, you pray in your heart so that it's not technically a lie when you get to them. Uh, and then the smile that appears on their face and you think, deed done. And you walk away. When in fact the author of Hebrews is saying, what, every day do that. Not every day get on your knees for your brothers and sisters, but every day go up and say, I'm praying for you. How are you? What are you doing? Now, if you live in an environment, which Hebrews is encouraging us to, where we actually can be vulnerable in a judgment-free zone, that is what the church is supposed to be. But often, especially in the South, it's a mortifying prospect to say to another Christian who you go to church with, things are not good. I mean, it's sort of like when you ask someone, how are you? What's the response you expect? Yeah, great, doing fine. I mean, what if you ask that question and the person actually said, my life's falling apart? You're like, well, I wasn't anticipating that. I really don't have time to hear about this. I was just making small talk and trying to be polite. But God bless you and I will pray for you. I mean, what if you actually entered into that? Actually entered into the life of the other person and held up their arms in the midst of the battle and that we actually could be at a place where we could be honest with our brothers and sisters. And I don't mean un, you know, divulging information uh, to, to people that we shouldn't be. Uh, but golly, if we can't come to one another with our, our deepest struggles and angst, uh, we're in big trouble as a church. 
We really are if we're not able to bear one another's burdens as God has called us to do. And so the author of Hebrews is not shaming these Hebrew believers in Jesus and saying, you just got to pull yourself up by the spiritual bootstraps. He's saying it's hard. It's a daily thing. And if you think that you can go it alone, you've got another thing coming and you need one another. You need to be immersed in your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ in his word and you have to constantly remind one another what he has done for you because in Moses day yes he provided manna in the wilderness but do you know what he's provided for you now the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit now dwells within you and you are now God's house and you are now brothers and sisters in a way that exceeds even that of our earthly brothers and sisters. And so spur one another on. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. He constantly repeats it because he knows exactly where we all are spiritually speaking. And so, uh, well, that's really it. Uh, as, as we come to the end of uh, chapter 3, and we'll pick it back up in uh, chapter 4. But I have a minute if somebody wants to ask a question or express a concern. What are you struggling with? Just kidding. Well, I, I was wondering, at Meribah, where, where Moses strikes... You know, Is that on? I think so. It's not. That's okay. Right. Right. Yeah, there's no doubt that Moses has entered into his eternal rest with the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, we see that at the Transfiguration. Uh, but um, And the ultimate reality from Moses is that, like the land of Israel is not the ultimate reality. That's not what what God's ultimate purpose was. God's ultimate purpose was to make for himself a people that he might dwell within them. And so the whole course of history, just showing up in Canaan, it's not like God's purpose is fulfilled. No. God's purposes are still moving in that direction where we become inhabitants of that heavenly city and we walk in perfect fellowship with him. And so where people might say, well, that wasn't very fair of God to punish him like that, being able to enter the promised land is nothing compared to the surpassing riches that we will enjoy in the Lord Jesus Christ when we behold him face to face. Pales in comparison. And so that's why we can echo with Paul that the, the trials and tribulations that we experience in this life pale in comparison to those surpassing riches that we have in him. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.